Hello, all you gorgeous people, and welcome to another episode of This Week Back Then. Today, I'm going to be talking about historical events that occurred between March 21st and March 27th. First on the list is Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary on Alcatraz Island in the San Francisco Bay. It officially closed on March 21st of 1963. Uh, Alcatraz, Alcatraz Island has been used for many things over the years, but most famously, famously as a federal prison from 1934 until 1963. Located in the middle of the San Francisco Bay, just one and a half miles from the shores of San Francisco, the rough, frigid waters made the island ideal for containing prisoners. The United States disciplinary barracks on Alcatraz were acquired by the United States Department of Justice on October 12, 1933, and the island became a federal prison in August of 1934. Alcatraz was was designed to hold prisoners who continuously caused trouble at other federal prisons. At 9.40 a.m. on August 11, 1934, the first batch of 137 prisoners arrived at Alcatraz, arriving by railroad from the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, to San Venetia, California, before being escorted to Alcatraz, handcuffed in high-security coaches and guarded by 60 special FBI agents, U.S. Marshals, and railway security officials. Most of the prisoners were notorious bank robbers and murderers. The prison initially had a staff of 155, including the first warden, James A. Johnston, and associate warden, J.E. Shuttleworth, both considered to be iron men. The staff were highly trained in security, but not rehabilitation. Isn't that something? During the 29 years it was in use, the jail held held some of the most notorious criminals in American history, such as Al Capone, Robert Franklin Stroud, also known as the Birdman of Alcatraz, George Machine Gun Kelly, Bumpy Johnson, Raphael Cancel Miranda, who was a member of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party who attacked the United States Capitol building uh, back in 1954, Mickey Cohen, Arthur R. Doc Barker, and Alvin Creepy Carpus. Uh, that's some, quite some characters there. Anyway, the Creepy Carpus, he served more time on Alcatraz than any other inmate. It also provided housing for the Bureau of Prison Staff and their families. How would you like to move your family to an island prison? Well, I mean, what happens if the... Uh, that, that seems like a frightening way to raise a family, but... They did it. Uh, during its 29 years of operation, the, the penitentiary claimed that no prisoner successfully escaped. A total of 36 prisoners made 14 escape attempts, two men trying twice. 23 were caught alive, six were shot and killed during the escape, two drowned, and five are listed as missing and presumed drowned. The most violent occurred in May on May 2nd of 1946 when a failed escape attempt by six prisoners led to the Battle of Alcatraz. Perhaps the most famous is the intricate escape carried out on June 11, 1962 by Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin. The three men and two brothers in prison together. I'm sure their mother was proud. The three men are, <laughs> the three men are believed to have drowned in their attempt. Uh, contrary to popular belief, it was possible to escape and swim all the way to the shore. Although most men were caught or drowned before reaching shore, in 1962, pres- prisoner John Paul Scott escaped and made it to the shore. However, upon reaching the shore, he was so weary that he was found unconscious by police and in hypothermic shock. To this day, people compete in the Escape from Alcatraz triathlon and swim the one and a half miles to shore. Uh, the reason there are several, there are a few reasons why Alcatraz eventually closed in 1963. Uh, one, the penitentiary, penitentiary just cost too much to operate in comparison to other prisons. Uh, Alcatraz cost about $10 per prisoner per day, as opposed to 
the $3 per prisoner per day uh, that, that, that cost elsewhere. And after half a century of saltwater saturation and had, uh, the buildings had severely eroded, um, and on top of that, three people escaped in 1962 that they never found. So they decided to shut the doors. I, uh, I got to uh, tour Alcatraz back when I was in junior high school, actually, back in the mid-80s. Um, it was a really amazing tour, really interesting. It, and the, they literally don't do much maintenance there. I mean, the concrete crumbled, and this was 35 years ago. Concrete was crumbling, and you know half the buildings are burned down or whatever. But it was uh, it was amazing. You get to see the cell that Al Capone is in. They actually put you in a cell and slam the big iron doors on you. I mean, that's quite a creepy feeling uh, when you're locked in. Well, supposedly locked in to one of those tiny cells. It was uh, a scared straight moment, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> didn't work out very well for me though did it all right also on march 21st uh in 2006 the first ever tweet was sent out it was sent out by twitter founder jack dorsey he tweeted just setting up my twitter uh exactly 15 15 years later he sold that tweet for 2.9 million dollars how do you sell or buy a tweet you ask well i'm glad i asked that because that made no sense to me. But Jack Dorsey, uh, CEO of Twitter and, and Square, sold his first tweet as an NFT, which is a non-fungible token uh, for over $2.9 million, when bidding ended on the Valuables platform, which is run by Scent, a blockchain-powered social media network. NFTs are digital assets, including JPEGs and video clips, that can be bought and sold just like physical assets. And since they run on blockchain, a decentralized digital ledger that documents transactions... Ownership and and validity of each can be tracked. So, what do you do with that tweet? I mean, how do you make money off of it? Or I don't, I don't understand. It doesn't make much sense. But I guess I'm not the smartest guy in the world. On March 22nd, back in 1931, Captain, well, was it Kirk? <laughs> I almost forgot. Uh, was born. William Shatner was born in 1931. Hard to believe that guy just turned 90. I mean, he's had some work done, I believe, but he's still active. And and I think my favorite role, well, I remember him back uh, in the 80s on TJ Hooker. Um, and then the, uh, one of my favorite roles of his, though, was outside of the Priceline guy, was uh, in Boston Legal. I think he does a superb job in that. Uh, just hilarious. But, you know, he's done records and, and, and of course, acted forever. And, and uh, anyway, 90 years old. On March the 23rd in 1775, the famous Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death uh, speech happened. It's a quotation attributed to Patrick Henry from a speech he made to the Second Virginia Convention on March 23rd in 1775 at St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia. Henry is credited with having swung the balance in convincing the convention to pass a resolution delivering Virginian troops to the Revolutionary War. Among the delegates to the convention were future U.S. Presidents Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. The speech was not published until the portfolio printed it printed a version of it in 1816. The version of the speech that is known today first appeared in print in Sketches of the Life and Character of Patrick Henry, a biography by William uh, a biography of Henry by William Wirt in 1817. There is debate among historians as to whether and to what extent Henry or Wirt should be credited with authorship of the speech and its famous closing words. 
According to Edmund Randolph, the convention sat in silence for several minutes afterwards. Thomas Marshall told his son John Marshall, who later became Chief Justice of the United States, that the speech was one of the boldest, vehement, and animated pieces of eloquence that had ever been delivered. Edward Carrington, who was listening outside a window of the church, requested to be buried on that spot, and in 1810, he got his wish. The drafter of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, George Mason, said, Every word he says not only engages but commands the attention, and your passions are no longer your own when he addresses them. More immediately, the resolution declaring the United United Colonies to be independent of the Kingdom of Great Britain was passed, and Henry was named as chairman of the committee assigned to build a militia. Britain's royal governor, Lord Dunmore, reacted by seizing the gunpowder in the public magazine at Williamsburg, Virginia's equivalent to of the battles of Lexington and Concord. Whatever the exact words of Henry were, scholars understandably are troubled by the way work brought into print Henry's classic liberty or death speech, wrote the historian Bernard Mayo. Yet its expressions seem to have burned themselves into men's memories. Certainly its, its spirit is that of the fiery orator who in 1775 so powerfully influenced Virginians and events leading to the American independence. So there you go. Give me liberty or give me death. In 1905, on March 23rd, actress Joan Crawford was born. Uh, she was quite a famous actress back in the what, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. I don't know. She, I think she passed away in the 70s. But um, I, uh, obviously, she's the, the subject of her adopted daughter, Christine, uh, biographer, uh, uh, memoir, uh, Mommy Dearest. And so that was, I, I saw that when it was first out back in the early eighties and I was a kid, it was quite frightening, but uh, I think maybe my mom showed me that so that she, I would realize how lucky I was. <laughs> no more wire hangers. What a crazy lady. In, on Jan, on March 23rd in 1929, the first telephone was installed at the president's desk in the white house. Uh, that was for Herbert Hoover. I'm not sure who he called first, but, uh, that was the first telephone at the president's desk. On March 24th of 1832, Joseph Smith was beaten, tarred, and feathered. Joseph Smith Jr. was an American religious leader and founder of Mormonism and the Latter-day Saint movement. When he was 24, Smith published the Book of Mormon. By the time of his death, 14 years later, he died pretty young, he had attracted tens of thousands of followers and founded a religion that continues to present the to be to the present with millions of global adherents. By 1831, Smith had already translated the Book of Mormon and established the Latter-day Saint movement. He had founded it as the Church of Christ, but was eventually instructed by Revelation to change its name to the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. After receiving what Smith described as Revelation, Smith and his wife, Emma Hale Smith, moved to Kirtland, Ohio, early in 1831. It has been thought that this may have been uh, to avoid conflict and persecution encountered in New York and Pennsylvania. They lived with Isaac Morley's family while a house was built for them on the Morley farm. Many of Smith's followers and associates settled in Kirtland and also in Jackson County, Missouri, where Smith said he was instructed by Revelation to build Zion. The early church grew rapidly. Due to the controversy which followed Smith, he was not to escape persecution for long. In early 1832, opposition took a violent turn. On Saturday, March 24th, Joseph was dragged from his bedroom in the dead of night. His attackers strangled him until he blacked out, tore off his shirt and drawers, beat and scratched him, and jammed a vial of poison against his teeth until it broke. After tarring and feathering his body, they left him for dead. 
Joseph limped back to the Johnson's house and cried out for a blanket. Through the night, his friend scraped off tar until his flesh was raw. Great googly moogly. That is a horrible punishment or whatever. Torture, whatever you want to call it. I mean, that is ridiculous. Also on March 24th, back in 1909, the charming Clyde Barrow was born. He was the half of the infamous duo Bonnie and Clyde. He was born March 24, 1909 in Teleco, Texas. He was the fifth of seven children born into a poor but close-knit farming family. His family's farm failed, to do, failed due to drought, and they eventually moved to Dallas, Texas. Clyde, who was a small and unassuming boy, attended school until the age of 16 and had ambitions of becoming a musician, learning to play both the guitar and saxophone. However, under the influence of his older brother, Buck, Clyde soon turned to a life of crime. Beginning with petty thievery, then graduating to stealing cars, Clyde soon escalated his activities to armed robbery. By late 1929, at the age of 20, Clyde was already a fugitive from the law wanted by authorities for several robberies. In January 1930, Clyde met a 19-year-old waitress named Bonnie Parker through a mutual friend and was immediately smitten. But after spending much time together during the following weeks, their budding romance was interrupted when Clyde was arrested and convicted on various accounts of auto theft. Once in prison, Clyde's thoughts turned to escape. By this time, he and Bonnie had fallen deeply in love, and Clyde was overtaken by heartache. Sharing his sentiments, much to the dismay of her mother, a lovesick Bonnie was more than willing to help the man she called her soulmate, and soon after his conviction, she smuggled a gun into the prison for him. On March 11, 1930, Clyde used the weapon to escape with his cellmates, but they were captured a week later. Clyde was then sentenced to 14 years of hard labor, eventually being transferred to Eastham State Farm, where he was repeatedly sexually assaulted by another inmate. While Clyde was serving his sentence, he and Bonnie began a passionate correspondence with each other, and once again, Clyde's thoughts turned to escape. Hoping to be relieved of his grueling work detail and paroled, Clyde had his big toe and part of another toe cut off in an accident, in quotes. As a result, he would walk with a permanent limp and be forced to drive in his socks. <laughs> okay. Unbeknownst to Clyde, his desperate scheme was unnecessary. His mother had already convinced the judge in his case to grant him parole. He's released two weeks later in February of 1932. After his release from prison, Clyde was reunited with Bonnie and made a brief effort to go straight, working at a Dallas glass company. But when police harassment caused him to lose his job, Clyde gave up, formed a gang, and resumed his criminal activities, with Bonnie eventually joining him. In the months that followed, Clyde and the changing gang committed a series of robberies at various small businesses and banks. Clyde killed a police officer and store owner during his group's crime spree and thus became a highly wanted man with a price on his head. Uh, deciding to maintain a low profile in the spring of 1933, Clyde and Bonnie, along with a gang member W.D. Jones, lived brief briefly with Clyde's brother Buck and his wife Blanche in Joplin, Missouri. But when neighbors grew suspicious of their presence, police arrived at the house and a shootout ensued. The four outlaws escaped, but they left behind two dead officers as well as a roll of film containing pictures that Bonnie and Clyde had taken together. The pictures were published in newspapers around the country along with the details of their exploits. As their crime spree continued, Clyde, Bonnie, Buck, Blanche, and Jones were con constantly pursued by law enforcement. In July 1933, officers found them in Platte City, Missouri, and another shootout ensued, during which Buck was seriously wounded. When police caught up with them again several days later, Bonnie and Clyde escaped along with Jones, but Buck and Blanche surrendered. He died of the wounds shortly thereafter, and she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Jones, after separating from Bonnie and Clyde, would be captured by authorities in November. 
In January 1934, Clyde helped orchestrate an Eastham jailbreak for a former accomplice. A prison guard was killed in the process, with Clyde escaping with his friend and several other inmates. Among the escapees was a convict named Henry Methvin, who soon became part of the Barrow Gang. With a posse that included former Texas Ranger Captain Frank Hamer in pursuit, uh, Methvin and Clyde killed two highway patrolmen on April 1st, 1934, in the area of Grapevine, Texas. With Methvin, I don't know why I can't say his name properly, killing a constable just two days later in in Commerce, Oklahoma. These murders set into motion the events that would lead to Bonnie and Clyde's demise. Bonnie and Clyde were eventually sought, or they eventually sought refuge at Methvin's family farm in Bienville Parish, Louisiana. But when Hamer and his posse learned of their whereabouts, Methvin's father betrayed the famous outlaws in exchange for amnesty for his son. On May 23, 1934, Bonnie and Clyde were driving down a Louisiana back road when they saw Methvin's father standing by his broken down truck. Unbeknownst to them, a posse of officers led by Hamer were lying in wait. When Bonnie and Clyde stopped to help the elder Methvin, the police opened fire. The duo, duo were killed in a hail of bullets. By the time of their deaths, Bonnie, and, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow were so famous that souvenir seekers at the scene attempted to make off with locks of their hair, pieces of their clothing, and even one of Clyde's ears. Their bodies were eventually returned to Dallas, and despite their wishes to be buried side by side, they were married, They were interred in separate cemeteries. And that is the rise and fall of Clyde Barrow. On March 24th of 1930, the King of Cool Steve McQueen was born. And also on that same day in 1958, the King of Rock and Roll, Elvis, was inducted into the Army, where he did a two-year stint, mostly in Germany, I believe. Also on that same day in 1989 was the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Uh, It occurred in Prince William Sound, Alaska on March 24, 1989. uh, The oil tanker owned by Exxon Shipping Company that was bound for Long Beach, California, struck Prince William Sound's Bly Reef one and a half miles west of Tadalek, Alaska at 12.04 a.m. and over the next few days spilled a staggering amount of oil into the sound. It is considered the worst oil spill worldwide in terms of damage to the environment. The Exxon Valdez spill is second largest in U.S. waters after the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill in terms of volume of oil released. Prince William Sound's remote location, accessible only by helicopter, plane, or boat, made uh, government and industry response efforts difficult and made existing response plans especially hard to implement. The region is a habitat for salmon, sea otters, seals, and seabirds. The oil originally extracted at the Prudhoe Bay oil field eventually affected 1,300 miles of coastline, of which 200 miles were heavily or moderately oiled. The ship was carrying 53.1 million U.S. gallons or 1.26 billion there are 1.26 million barrels of oil, of which approximately 10.8 million uh, gallons spilled into the Prince William Sound. Multiple, multiple factors have been identified as contributing to the incident, uh, including Exxon Shipping Company failed to supervise the ship's captain and provide a rested and sufficient crew for Exxon Valdez. The NTSB found this practice was widespread throughout the industry, prompting a safety recommendation to Exxon and to the industry. Uh, the third mate failed to properly maneuver the vessel, possibly due to fatigue or excessive workload. And Exxon Shipping Company failed to properly maintain the Raytheon Collision Avoidance System, RACAS, 
radar, which is which if if functional would have indicated to the third mate an impending collision with the Bly Reef by detecting the radar reflector placed on the next rock inland from Bly Reef for the purpose of keeping ships on course. This cause was brought toward brought forward by Greg Pallast and is not present in the official accident report, actually. Captain Joseph Hazelwood, who was widely reported to have been drinking heavily that night, was not at the controls when the ship struck the reef. Exxon blamed Captain Hazelwood for the grounding of the tanker, but Hazelwood accused the corporation of making him a scapegoat. As a senior officer in command of the ship, he was accused of being intoxicated and thereby contributing to the disaster, but he was cleared of this charge at his 1990 trial after witnesses, witnesses testified that he was sober around the time of the accident. Other factors, according to an MIT course entitled Software System Safety by Professor Nancy G. Levison, included, uh, number one, ships were not informed that the previous practice of the Coast Guard tracking ships out to Bly Reef had ceased. Two, the oil industry promised but never installed state-of-the-art iceberg monitoring equipment. Three, Exxon Valdez was sailing outside the normal sea lane to avoid small icebergs thought to be in in the area. Four, the Coast Guard vessel uh, inspections in Valdez were not performed and the number of staff was reduced and five lack of available equipment and personnel ham- uh, hampered the spill cleanup. This disaster res- uh, resulted in the International Maritime Organization introducing comprehensive maritime pollution prevention rules, MARPOL, through various conventions. The rules were ratified by member countries and under international ship management rules, the ships were being operated with a common objective of safer ships and cleaner oceans. In 2009, Exxon Valdez Captain Joseph Hazelwood offered a heartfelt apology to the people of Alaska, suggesting he had been wrongly blamed for the disaster. The true story is out there for anybody who wishes to look at the facts, but that's not the sexy story and that's not the easy story, he said. Hazelwood said he felt Alaskans always gave him a fair shake. In the months after the Exxon Valdez oil spill, Exxon employees, federal responders, and more than 11,000 Alaska residents worked to clean up the oil spill. Exxon paid about $2 billion in cleanup costs and $1.8 billion for habitat restoration and personal damages related to the spill. Cleanup workers skimmed oil from the water surface, sprayed oil dispersant chemicals in the water and on shore, washed oiled beaches with hot water, and rescued and cleaned animals trapped in oil. Environmental officials purposely left some areas of shoreline untreated so they could study the effect of cleanup measures, some of which were unproven at the time. They later found that aggressive washing with high-pressure hot water hoses was effective in removing oil, but did even more ecological damage by killing the remaining plants and animals in the process. One of those areas that was was oiled but never cleaned is a large shoreline boulder called Mirns Rock. Scientists have returned to Mirns Rock every summer since the spill to photograph the plants and small uh, critters growing on it. They found that many of the mussels... Back, uh, barnacles and various seaweeds growing on the rock before the spill returned to normal levels about three to four years after the spill. Prince William Sound had been a pristine wilderness before the spill. The Exxon Valdez disaster dramatically changed all of that, taking a major toll on wildlife. It killed an estimated 250,000 seabirds, 3,000 otters, 300 seals, 250 bald eagle, eagles, and 22 killer whales. The oil spill also may have played a role in the collapse of salmon and herring fisheries in Prince William Sound in the early 1990s. Fishermen went bankrupt, and the economies of small shoreline towns, including Valdez and Cordova, suffered in the following years. Some reports estimate estimated the total economic loss from, Exxon, from the Exxon Valdez oil spill to be as much as $2.8 billion. 
The 2001 study found oil contamination remaining at more than half of the 91 beach sites tested in Prince William Sound. The spill had killed an estimated 40% of all sea otters living in the Sound. The sea otter population didn't recover to its pre-spill levels until 2014, 25 years after the spill. Stocks of herring, once a lucrative source of income for Prince William Sound fishermen, have never fully rebounded. In October 1989, Exxon filed a suit against the state of Alaska. So here they are. They're, now they're Exxon, who did the spill, they're going to sue everybody. Uh, anyway, filed a suit against the state of Alaska, claiming that the state had interfered with Exxon's attempts to clean up the spill by refusing to approve the use of dispersant chemicals until the night of the 26th. The state of Alaska disputed this claim, stating that there was a long-standing agreement to allow the use of dispersants to clean up spills. Thus, Exxon did not require permission to use them, and that, in fact, Exxon had not an, uh, had not had enough dispersant on hand to effectively handle a spill of the size created by Exxon Valdez. Exxon filed claims in October 1990 against the Coast Guard, asking to be reimbursed for cleanup costs and damages awarded to plaintiffs in any lawsuits filed by the state of Alaska or the federal government against Exxon. The company claimed that the Coast Guard was wholly or partially responsible for the spill because they had granted mariners license, licenses to the crew of the Valdez and because they had given Exxon Valdez permission to leave regular shipping lanes to avoid ice. <laughs> That's like, I guess, blaming the state for issuing a driver's license to somebody who went out and got drunk and 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 crashed the car. I, I don't know. Maybe not. But it seems like that's a, a, a fair comparison. They also reiterated the claim that the Coast Guard had delayed cleanup by refusing to give permission to immediately use chemical dispersants on the spill. Also in 1991, Exxon made a quiet, separate financial settlement of damages with a group of seafood producers known as the Seattle Seven for the disaster's effects on the Alaskan seafood industry. The agreement granted $63.75 million to the Seattle, Seattle 7, but stipulated that the seafood companies would have to repay almost all of any punitive damages awarded in other civil proceedings. The $5 billion in punitive damage that was awarded later and the, uh, and the Seattle 7's share could have been as high as $750 million if the damages award had held. Other plaintiffs have objected to this secret arrangement, and when it came to light, Judge Holland ruled that Exxon should have told the jury at the start that an agreement had already been made so the jury would know exactly how much Exxon would have to pay. In the case of Exxon versus Baker, an Anchorage jury awarded $287 million for actual damages and $5 billion for punitive damages. To protect itself in case the judgment was affirmed, Exxon obtained a $4.8 billion credit line from J.P. Morgan and Company, who created the first modern, modern credit default swap so that they would not have to hold as much money in reserve against the risk of Exxon's default. Meanwhile, Exxon appealed the ruling, and the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ordered the trial judge, Russell Holland, to reduce the punitive damages. On December 6, 2002, Holland announced that he had reduced the damages to $4 billion, which he concluded was justified by the facts of the case and that and was not grossly excessive. Exxon appealed again, and the case returned to Holland to be reconsidered in light of a recent Supreme Court ruling in a similar case. Holland increased the punitive damages to $4.5 billion, plus interest. After more appeals in December 2006, the damages awarded were, uh, was cut to $2.5 billion. The Court of Appeals cited recent Supreme Court rulings relative to limits 
uh, on punitive damages. Exxon appealed again. On May 23rd, 2007, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals denied ExxonMobil's request for a third hearing and let stand its ruling that Exxon owed $2.5 billion in punitive damages. Exxon then appealed to the Supreme Court, which agreed to hear the case. On February 27th, 2008, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments uh, and Justice Samuel Alito, who at the time owned between $100,000 and $250,000 in Exxon stock, recused himself from the case. In a decision decision issued June 25, 2008, written by Justice David Souter, the court vacated the $2.5 billion award and remanded the case back to the lower court, finding that the damages were excessive with respect to maritime common law. Exxon's actions were deemed worse than negligent but less than malicious. The punitive damages were further reduced to amount of $507.5 million. The court's ruling was that the maritime punitive damages should not exceed the compensatory damages supported by a precedent dating from 1818. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Patrick J. Leahy has described the ruling as another in a line of cases where the Supreme Court uh, has misconstructed or misconstrued, excuse me, congressional intent to benefit large corporations. By the way, that guy is still a senator. He's been there since 1975. He's 80. Retire, for God's sakes. Exxon's official position was that punitive damages greater than $25 million were not justified because the spill resulted from an accident and because Exxon spent an estimated $2 billion cleaning up the spill and a further billion dollars to settle related civil and criminal charges. Attorneys for the plaintiffs contended that Exxon bore responsibility for the accident because the company put a drunk in charge of a tanker in Prince William Sound. Exxon recovered a significant portion of cleanup and legal expenses through insurance claims associated with the grounding of Exxon Valdez. As of December 15, 2009, Exxon had paid the entire $507.5 million in punitive damages, including lawsuit costs plus interest, which were further distributed to thousands of plaintiffs. Good golly. The ship, Exxon Valdez, first commissioned in in 1986, was repaired and returned to service a year after the spill in a different ocean and under a different name. The single-hulled ship could no longer transport transport oil in U.S. waters due to the new regulations. The ship began running oil transport routes in Europe, where single-hulled oil tankers were still allowed. There it was renamed the Exxon Mediterranean, then the Sea River Mediterranean, and finally the SR Mediterranean. In 2002, the European Union banned single-hulled tankers, and the former Exxon Valdez moved to Asian waters. Gee whiz. (laughs) Exxon sold the infamous tanker in 2008 to a Hong Kong-based shipping company. The company converted the old tanker to an ore carrier, renaming it the Dongfeng Ocean. In 2010, the Starcross ship collided with another bulk carrier in the Yellow Sea and was once again severely damaged. The ship was uh, renamed once more after the collision, becoming the Oriental Nicety. Uh, The Oriental Nicety was sold for scrap to an Indian company and dismantled in 2012. March 25th. Lots of good birthdays in March 25th. In 1918, Howard Cosell was born. Uh, Probably most famous for uh, hosting Monday Night Football from its inception back in, what, 1970, 71, something like that. Uh, He also, uh, other sports too, but that was probably one of his most famous jobs. 1942, uh, the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, was born. And in 1947, one of my favorite performers of all time, Elton John, was born. Uh, Reginald Kenneth Dwight was his original name, which he changed to Elton Hercules John in the early 70s. 
Uh, I saw him in a concert a couple times, one time with Billy Joel and one time by himself. And then I was, I had tickets to go see him on his goodbye yellow brick, farewell yellow brick road tour, uh, last April, which got canceled because of the pandemic, of course. Um, and so I, I don't know if I'll be able to go and see him. Uh, I think he's rescheduling it for another year from now. So two years after it was supposed to be scheduled. So anyway, that's, uh, March 25th birthdays. March 26th, 1970, the U.S. conducts its 500th nuclear test since 1945. 500 <laughs> nuclear detonations. I mean, what in the world are we testing? We could go on, uh, we would go on to complete a total of 1,032 test fi- tests, firing a total of 1,132 nuclear devices between 1945 and 1992 when they were cut off by the negotiation of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. My gosh, can you, I mean, no wonder our world is in such a mess. All that nuclear, I don't know. I don't know all the details, but it just seems horrible. <laughs> in 1973, on the 26th of March, my mom's favorite soap opera, Young and the Restless, uh, premiered. Um, and I think today they have the exact same people playing the exact same roles that they did back in 1973. The, uh, the one thing about that show, well, probably all soap operas is you can go like three or four years of not watching it and then start watching again and never miss a beat. It's, it's all the same. It's all the same. Anyway, on March 26th of 1997, uh, Heaven's Gate, uh, cult all killed themselves. Uh, they were an American UFO religious cult based near San Diego, California, founded in 1974 and led by Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. In October of 1996, members of T's clan began renting a large home, which they called the monastery, a 9,200 square foot mansion located near 18341 Colina Norte, later changed to Paseo Victoria. Not that anybody cares. In Rancho Santa Fe, California, they paid $7,000 a month in cash. In the same month, the group purchased alien abduction insurance that would cover up to 50 members and would pay out a million dollars per person. The policy covered abduction, impregnation, or death by aliens. On March... (laughs) I'm sorry. That is... Uh, it takes all kinds, I guess. On March 19th and 20th, 1997, Marshall Applewhite taped himself in Doe's Doe's final exit, speaking of mass suicide and the only way to evacuate this earth. After asserting that a spacecraft was trailing Comet Haley Bop and that this event would represent the closure to heaven's gate, Applewhite persuaded 38 followers to prepare for ritual suicide so their souls could board the supposed craft. Applewhite believed that after their deaths, an unidentified flying object would take their souls to another level of existence above human, which he described as being both physical and spiritual. Their preparations included each member's videotaping a farewell message. To kill themselves, members took phenobarbital mixed with applesauce or pudding and washed it down with vodka. That's what you, that's what you do in church. Additionally, they secured plastic bags around their heads after ingesting ingesting the mix to induce asphyxiation. All 39 were dressed in identical black shirts and sweatpants, brand new black and white Nike Decades athletic shoes. Well, you want to be comfortable on a journey like this. And, uh, and armband patches reading Heaven's Gate Away Team. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Oh, 
anyway, um, each member uh, had on their person a five dollar bill and three quarters in their pockets. This was this was in reference to. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't keep a straight face here. This was in reference to Huck Finn, in which it stated that it costs five dollars and seventy five cents to ride the tail of a comet to heaven. I, I I'm. I'm going to just go on. I'm just going to move on here. Um, I, I don't even know what else to say about it. Uh, once a member was dead, a living member would arrange the body by removing the plastic bag from the person's head, followed by posing the body so that it lay neatly in its own bed with faces and torsos covered by a square purple cloth for privacy. In an interview with Harry Robinson, the two surviving members said that the identical clothing was used as a uniform for the mass suicide to represent unity. Whilst the Nike decades were chosen because the group got a good deal on the shoes. Well, there you go. At least they're. Yeah. Okay. Apple White was also a fan of Nikes and therefore everyone is expected to wear and like Nikes within the group. Heaven's Gate also uh, within the group. Heaven's Gate also had a saying within the group. Just do it. Which used which was Nike's slogan. They pronounced uh, do as dough. To reflect Apple White's nickname, because his nickname was Doe, like a deer, but a male deer. The 39 adherents, 21 women and 18 men between the ages of 26 and 72, are believed to have died in three groups over three successive days, with remaining participants cleaning up after each prior group's deaths. The suicides occurred in groups of 15, 15, and 9, between approximately March 22nd and March 26th. Among the dead was... Thomas Nicholas, brother of the actress Nichelle Nicholas, Nichols, excuse me, who is best known for her role as Uhura in the original television series of Star Trek. So she probably got him a good good deal on the tickets on the spacecraft. Leader Applewhite was the third to last member to die. Two people remained after him and were the only ones who would be found with bags over their heads and not having purple claws covered their covering their top halves. Before the last of the suicides, similar sets of packages were sent to numerous Heaven's Gate affiliated or formerly affiliated individuals and at least one media outlet, the BBC department responsible for Louis Thoreau's weird weekends, for which Heaven's Gate had earlier declined participation. Among those in the list uh, of recipients was Rio D'Angelo. The package D'Angelo received on the evening of March 25th, as other packages sent set had, contained two VHS videotapes, one with Doe's final exit and the other with the far- farewell messages of group followers. It also contained a letter stating that, among other things, we have exited our vehicles just as we entered them. Upon informing his boss of the contents of the packages, D'Angelo received a ride from him to Los Angeles, from Los Angeles to the Heaven's Gate home in Rancho Santa Fe, so he could verify the letter. D'Angelo found a back door intentionally left unlocked to allow access and used a video camera to record what he found. After leaving the house, D'Angelo's boss, who had waited outside, encouraged him to make calls to authorities, alerting them to his discovery. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department received an anonymous tip through the 911 system at 3.15 p.m. on March 26th, suggesting they check on the welfare of the residents. Days after the suicides, the caller was revealed to be D'Angelo. The caller said, yes, I need to report an anonymous tip. Who do I talk to? Sheriff's Department said, okay, this is regarding what? Caller said, this is regarding a mass suicide, and I can give you the address. <laughs> the uh, single deputy who first responded to the call entered the home uh, through a side door, saw 10 bodies, and was nearly overcome by a pungent odor. 
Uh, they'd already been de decomposing in the hot California spring, I guess. After a cursory search of by two deputies, uh, found no one alive, both retreated until a search warrant could be procured. All 39 bodies were ultimately cremated. I'm telling you what, people will believe anything, I guess. I don't know. That's just... <laughs> okay, then. On March 27th of 1859, kerosene was pat patented by Abraham Gessner. I just included this because I saw that in the list of historical things, and, and it brought me back to some childhood memories of kerosene heater. I don't know if you all ever had those in your homes or whatever, but... Uh, I mean, oh my gosh, the fumes alone would knock you out. Uh, I mean, yeah, probably not the safest way to, to, to warm up a room, but uh, they've gotten better over the years, I guess. In 1977, on March 27th, uh, two Boeing 747 passenger jets operating KLM Flight 4805 and Pan Am Flight 1736 collided on the runway at Los Rodeos Airport, which is now Tenerife North Airport, on the Spanish island of Tenerife, resulting in 583 fatalities. This accident is the deadliest in aviation history. A terrorist incident in Gran Canaria Airport had caused many flights to be diverted to Los Rodeos, including the two aircraft involved in the accident. The airport quickly became congested with parked airplanes blocking the only taxiway and forcing departing aircraft to taxi on the runway instead. Patches of thick fog were drifting across the field, across the airfield, hence visibility was great, greatly reduced for pilots and the control tower. The collision occurred when the KLM airliner initiated its takeoff run while the Pan Am airliner, shrouded in fog, was still on the runway and about to turn off onto the taxiway. The impact and resulting fire killed everyone on board KLM 4805 and most of the occupants of Pan Am 1736 with only 61 survivors in the front section of the aircraft. The subsequent investigation by Spanish authorities concluded that primary cause of the accident was the KLM captain's decision to take off in the mistaken belief that a takeoff clearance from air traffic control had been issued. Dutch investigators placed a greater emphasis on a mutual misunderstanding in radio communications between the KLM crew and the air traffic control, but ultimately KLM admitted that the crew was responsible for uh, for the accident, and the airline agreed to financially compensate the relatives of all the victims. The, the, the disaster had a lasting influence on the industry, highlighting in particular the vital importance of using standardized, phrase standardized phraseology in radio communications. Cockpit procedures were also reviewed, contributing to the establishment of crew resource management as a fundamental part of airline pilots' training. What a very sad, sad event. I, I, 583 people. Wow. Terrible. March 27, 1980, a series of volcanic explosions and pyroclastic flows began at Mount St. Helens in Skamania County, Washington, United States. It initiated as a series of uh, phreatic blasts from the summit that escalated on May 18, 1980, as a major explosive eruption. The eruption, which had a volcanic explosivity index of five, was the most significant to occur in the contiguous 48 U.S. states since the much smaller 1950 eruption, 1915 eruption of Lassen Peak in California. It has often been, uh, been declared the most disastrous volcanic eruption in U.S. history. 
The eruption was preceded by a two-month series of earthquakes and steam-venting episodes caused by an injection of magma at a shallow depth below the volcano that created a large bulge and (laughs) a fracture system uh, on the mountain's north slope. An earthquake at 8.32 and 11 seconds a.m. Pacific time on Sunday, May 18, 1980, caused the entire weakened north face to slide away, creating the largest landslide in recorded history. Uh, this allowed the party, the partly molten high pressure gas and steam rich rock in the volcano to suddenly explode northward towards spirit Lake in a hot mix of lava and pulverized older rock overtaking the avalanching face. An eruption column rose 80,000 feet into the atmosphere and deposited ash in 11 U S states and two Canadian provinces. At the same time, snow, ice, and several entire glaciers on the volcano melted, forming a series of large, Lahars, volcanic mudslides, I guess, that reached as far as the Columbia River, nearly 50 miles to the southwest. Less severe outbursts continued into the next day, only to be followed by another by other large but not as destructive eruptions later that year. Thermal energy relapse or released during the eruption was equal to 26 megatons of TNT. Approximately 57 people were killed directly, including innkeeper Harry R. Truman, photographers Reed Blackburn and Robert Landsberg, uh, and geologist. Uh, David A. Johnston. Uh, Hundreds of square miles were reduced to wasteland, causing over a billion dollars in damage, which is about $3.4 billion in 2019 dollars, in case you're wondering. Thousands of animals were killed, and Mount St. Helens was left with a crater on its north side. At the time of the eruption, the summit of the volcano was owned by the Burlington Northern Railroad, but afterward, the land passed the United States Forest Service. The area was later preserved as it was in the Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument. Wow, that was crazy. I remember when that happened. We were, I was in like in the third grade or something. Second grade, maybe. Well, that does it for this episode. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. As always, my sources were wikipedia.com, biography.com, history.com, onthisday.com, un.org. Huh? Threw an org at you there. Uh, and uh, Miss Mayer is my third grade teacher. So join us next time when we talk about the greatest show on earth, Bunsen Burners, the Eiffel Tower, and so much more good history. Until then, be kind. Mm